So listen, church, rest today in the wonderful truth that though your sin is great, his mercy is greater. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's look in our Bibles at Psalm 51, but I also want you to take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we're continuing our doxology series this morning through uh, seven essential psalms. And today we're going to be diving into a psalm that is perhaps quoted um, the most by Christians other than Psalm 23, which we know as the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm, 20, or Psalm 51 was uh, requested by William Carey, the great missionary to India, uh, to be the text that was preached at his eulogy, at his funeral. Uh, Augustine, the great church father, had a portion of Psalm 51 actually printed on his curtains so that every morning when he woke up, he could remind himself to have a broken and contrite heart before God every single day. Why do so many Christians relate to the words of Psalm 51? I believe it's because if there's anything that all of us as Christians have in common, it's the need for the mercies of God in light of our abhorrent sin. Uh, there was a newspaper editorial that once asked this question, what's wrong with the world? And the witty, winsome uh, theologian G.K. Chesterton wrote in a two-word response to that question. What's wrong with the world? He wrote in, I am. <laughs> I like that. Uh, that spirit of confession, of saying outwardly, I'm the problem, I'm the issue, it's me, um, that is kind of missing, if you would, from uh, culture today. It's missing as a, as a discipline. This discipline of confession is missing uh, in the church today. It's simultaneously one of the most important and yet one of the most difficult practices in Christianity. And, and yet the church has mirrored the world in having an absence of confession. We'll do anything but confess. In the last few years, just watching the news, big scandals have broken on the political scene. Big scandals have broken on the, the entertainment scene. Hey, they've broken in every scene. And it seems like the last thing someone wants to do is get up publicly and offer their mea culpa and saying, here's what I did wrong, I am sorry, and I shouldn't have done that. That's not something that we're used to. The classic response from Adam is to deny it, it's to blame, it's to justify, and it's to hide. And so we have a bad example outside of the church and then inside of the church when pastors are caught in scandal, when Christians are caught in scandal, they don't want to confess. They don't want to acknowledge what they did wrong. And so the problem is that we have what I call counterfeit confessions. Maybe you've spoken a counterfeit confession. Maybe you've heard someone give a counterfeit confession. I just want to walk through a few of these before we dive into this passage of Scripture. There's a few different counterfeit confessions. There is, of course, the martyr's confession. The martyr's confession is, okay, I sinned, so shoot me. In other words, God, I didn't think what I did was that bad, but if you're going to be that unreasonable and make me confess it publicly, well, just go ahead and just kill me right now. That's the martyr's confession. There's, of course, the politician's confession where the politician would say, errors were made, right? They're not going to actually say they made the mistake. That's like the Titanic uh, captain saying, all right, folks, uh, icebergs were hit. <laughs> They're not actually going to take responsibility and take the blame. No one's responsible. But see, that's not confession. There's, of course, what I call the crocodile's confession. You know, when you're caught, you cry crocodile tears because you were caught. And the idea is that I'm sorry, but I'm sorry I got caught. Uh, and ultimately, that's not confession. There is, of course, the next one, which is the narcissist confession. Maybe you've heard this before, which is, I'm sorry that you took offense. I'm sorry you took it that way. That's not really saying I'm sorry. Uh, that's a pseudo-confession. You know, Lord, I'm sorry that bothered you, but you need to get over it. You're too sensitive. Uh, that's the narcissist confession. There is, of course, the POW's confession. The POW 
uh, confession would say, you know, I'll mouth the words, but I won't actually mean them. And prisoners of war have forced confessions where they mouth the words, but there's no meaning or reality behind it. And sometimes someone's caught and they'll say, yeah, I'm really sorry, but they aren't actually changing any behavior. And then finally, this isn't exhaustive, but we have the negotiator's confession, which is where the person says, well, I'll say if I was wrong, if I say that, uh, will you cut me a deal? I'll say I'm wrong if you cut me a deal. God, I'll stop this sin as long as you allow me to not go to church two times a month. All right? if, that, if that works out, then we're good. That's not confession. That's called plea bargaining. But in the psalm before us, there's no plea bargaining. Uh, there's no denials. In Psalm 51, there's no political spin doctoring. There's no crocodile tears. No, we have a broken, humbled man who acknowledges his sin. In this psalm, David desires to experience the mercies of God even as he's asking God to receive his crippled, uh, broken spirit and to still have a plan to use him for God's glory. So as we study Psalm 51 together, I want to have before us a sobering example and reminder about how any of us, about how all of us, are capable of awful transgression. The words that we're studying here this morning, I want us to think about this. These are the song lyrics of a psalm that were penned by a murdering adulterer. I want you to remember that this morning. A covetous thief who violated four out of the last five commandments. Let's not forget that as we read this. Psalm 51 is one of what are called the penitential psalms, one of seven. There's seven psalms that are written from the perspective of the songwriter who's saying, I'm asking God to have mercy on my life for my sin. These are prayers that we should pray because it's not a matter of if we sin, but when we sin. Here's some of the examples. The penitential psalms include Psalm 6, Psalm 32, which we'll reference a little bit today, Psalm 38, 102, 130, 143, and of course, Psalm 51 here. Now, someone might be saying, well, hang on, Pastor. I thought David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, and so if he's a man after God's own heart, doesn't that mean that he doesn't sin? Well, no, we'll learn what that phrase means and doesn't mean a little bit later. Uh, so what sin did David commit? You might be here today and you're like, I didn't know that King David sinned. Well, we're going to go there today. Look at the heading above Psalm 51 uh, in your Bibles. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and the uh, heading above Psalm 51, verse 1, says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, and here when it was written, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Okay, so that's what we're talking about today. That's the sin. And so here's how we're going to outline Psalm 51 together. There's a generous amount of verses, so we're going to break it down this way. We're going to see verses 1 through 6 are a plea of confession. David offers his plea for mercy as he confesses what he did wrong, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see a prayer for cleansing, which we've already kind of talked about in worship, uh, verses 7 through 12. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17 where David gives a promise of commitment and then we're going to close it out with a petition for compassion in verses 18 and 19. And what we're going to see today is that these four things are present in someone who's being penitent, someone who acknowledges their sin, confesses it, someone who prays that God would take that sin away from them, that he would wash them white. Uh, we see a desire to commit their life in repentance to walking with Jesus, and then we see a desire for compassion from God, that we ask God to restore us to himself. So we're not going to start in Psalm 51. We will get there, I promise. We're going to go back to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and if you're already there, look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Okay, if you're taking note, that was mistake number one. The kings and the soldiers are out fighting battles. What is David doing? He's not. He's resting. He's hanging out at home. He should have been with his troops. He should have been doing battle with the enemy. Instead, he's doing battle with his own lust. Okay, so look at verse 7. 
or verse 2 rather. How did I get verse 7? Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Okay, that was mistake number two. Not that he lived where there were beautiful women, but mistake number two was that he was resting and then walking out onto the roof of his house, looking down at people who were bathing, because that's what you do on the roof. You would take showers, you'd bathe on the roof. And so he's kind of out just walking around. Let's see what Israel's doing today. What's Jerusalem? Okay. And he's looking out. That was mistake number two. Uh, He was in a state that he shouldn't have been in, and he was in a place he shouldn't have been. But then he makes mistake number three, verse three. And David sent and inquired about the woman. All right. David shouldn't have been looking to begin with, uh, but once he lays eyes on Bathsheba, he should have looked away. Uh, we can't do anything if we're flipping through the channels and something inappropriate comes on. If you're driving down the road and there's a beautiful woman jogging past you, you can't help. That's, that's where we can obviously not do that. And so David sins by beginning to investigate to dig deeper. Look at the rest of verse 3. The person he inquired of said, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this is where David should have put his sin completely to death. Someone says, hey, we know her dad. Hey, we know her husband. He's one of your commanders. He's an important person. She's married, David. But see, David plummets further into his sin. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And then she returned to her house, verse 5, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So here, I just want to like recap. Let's just keep count here. We have the king of Israel. Just consider this for a minute. Israel's king, anointed by God, coercing a married woman to come to his bed and to sleep with him. And she ends up pregnant. But what happens next is worse. You know this. Often when we commit one sin, now we have to commit a bunch of other sins to keep the first sin um, covered up. And so that's exactly what David does. Even though people were sent to get her, he thinks, I'm going to keep this quiet. No one will know. And so he calls her husband Uriah, who's on the front lines, to come back. And his whole thing is, this will work great. Uriah will go be with his wife, and then the baby that's born will look like their child. Everything's good. But see, Uriah was a man who put his men above himself, unlike David. And so he doesn't even come to his house. He lays outside, uh, and David's plan is foiled. And so David then, in desperation, decides to send Uriah and his men to the very front lines, to the fiercest part of the battle, withdraws some of his men, and Uriah, and most likely his company of men around him, uh, were killed by the Ammonites. And so uh, what happens next? Bathsheba loses her husband. She grieves. She mourns for him. David brings her into his home and marries her, and then she gives birth to a son. Now, again, people were involved in this, the people that were inquired of, the people who came and were the messengers being sent, and certainly um, some type of... um, mystery or idea was happening behind the scenes. Maybe people looked at the time frame of their marriage and the time frame of the birth of the son. And so certainly there could have been whispering. Uh, and, and yet what happens next is probably a time span of a few months, but for David it felt like an eternity. There's months and months and months until the child's born and then the, the child is born and he's staying quiet. He's, he's kind of denying and ignoring the sin and thinking everything worked out. I got away with it. And yet during that season of getting away with his sin, he is overwhelmed by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he recounts this in Psalm 32. Uh, jot this down, Psalm 32, verses 6 and 4. This is kind of a side picture of the conviction David was experiencing. He says this in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, guys, we live in Florida. I mean, we understand what that's like. We're getting through the summer. It's still going to continue until, I don't know, December. We're still going to have the heat of summer and the humidity. And you know what this is like. You walk outside and you just go into your car 
Maybe you're like me and you store stuff in the garage except the car and the car goes in the carport and you walk out to the car and you get in the car and just that distance from here to the car and you're dripping with sweat. Anyone else? Am I the only one who experiences that? Don't raise your hands too high because you'll show your stains, right? So that happens to me often. I'll just go check the mail and I'm dripping with sweat. David is saying it's like that when the hand of God is upon you with unrepentant, unconfessed sin. Some of you here this morning know exactly what that describes. You're experiencing the heavy hand of conviction, maybe even today. You're squirming. I want to get out of this message. Why did we come to church today? Because you know that the conviction of the Holy Spirit has been heavy upon you, and you've been resisting the voice of the Holy Spirit. David says, this was, this was awful. It was God almost like breaking my bones. It was heavy. He had not confessed his sin. He had concealed it. And then there was a knock at the door. Look over at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was the prophet over Israel at that time. And God had clearly communicated to Nathan to go to David with a message. Now, Nathan does this very cleverly, cleverly, wow, uh, does this kind of shrewdly. Uh, The idea is that he comes to David with kind of a little parable. He says, David, there's this rich man and he's got all of these flocks of sheep. And he has a neighbor who's a very poor man, and the poor man has one little lamb. And he's taken that lamb, and he's raised that lamb as if it were his own child. It's like a family member. That lamb probably was named and had a spot inside and maybe a collar, and you dressed him up at Halloween. I don't know, but that lamb was a part of the family. And David, the king, wanted to throw a party, and so he stole the lamb from the one poor guy and cooked the lamb for his guests. What do you want to do about that? And and David is incensed. He's furious. He goes, who is that man? It says in verse 5, I think we have it on the screen, it says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man who doesn't exist. It's It's a theoretical, it's a parable. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Well, then we have one of the most powerful confrontations in all the Bible, if not in all of human history. Verse 7, the Then said to David, you are the man. You are the man. He says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? And then God gets very specific through Nathan. He says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him, not with your sword, but with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the consequence, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. God says, you try to do this secretly at night, I'm going to do this in broad daylight. Now what happens next is where Psalm 51 sort of begins. Verse 13 of chapter 12 is David's response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. There's no crocodile tears here. He's not trying to blame anyone else. He's taking responsibility. I have sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And so Nathan said to David, though you want this man to die who took the lamb, he said, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. David here says, I have sinned against the Lord. He acknowledges his sin before God's prophet Nathan, and the consequence is severe. I mean, the, the, the devastation of this sin is far-reaching. Uriah has been killed. Most likely his men have been killed. Bathsheba has lost her husband. The child conceived in their adultery is going to die, and the household of David is going to be marked by the sword. 
This is also going to happen publicly in, all, in front of all of Israel. This is a heavy sin for a night's few moments of pleasure. Now, I want us to turn to Psalm 51 and look at the first six verses and get kind of an idea of where David goes. In this probably moment, he begins to uh, write this song, and we begin with a plea of confession. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now listen, there's a lot to unpack here, a lot to get to uh, work on. But notice that first David cries out to God for mercy. God, I need your mercy. Now we've defined mercy as different than justice and it's different than grace. If you haven't heard this before, we'll give this definition on the screen. Justice is getting what you deserve. In the world today, we see things that are unjust, and we go, we need justice, okay? That's getting what is deserved. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So you may deserve that speeding ticket. The policeman didn't catch you, so you had mercy uh, given to you. And then grace is getting what you don't deserve. And so uh, that's obviously a step beyond mercy. Now, we usually want mercy for ourselves, but justice for our enemies, Uh, But the truly penitent heart is crying out for God to not give them what is deserved. And here, David is asking for the mercy of God according to the uh, hesed of God. the, The steadfast, unfailing, loyal, covenantal, loving mercy. David is not asking for God to have mercy according to David's goodness because there's nowhere to draw from in that bank account. He's asking for God to have mercy out of his own steadfast love. And then he asks in verses 1 and 2 for three specific things. Notice with me, he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and thirdly, cleanse me from my sin. I want you to circle those three ideas. Blot out, wash me, and cleanse me. Those are three completely different ideas, okay? Blot out implies some sort of human record that can be erased. This would be the work of a bookkeeper. So a bookkeeper has a ledger, uh, and they'll strike some things from the ledger. Anybody remember Whiteout as a kid? You remember that? So back before everything was digital, we actually had a thing called paper. Anybody remember that? Paper. Am I? Okay. So paper was a thing. And when you were writing on paper and you made a mistake, you would take out this wonderful bottle of glory and you would open it up and there's a little paint uh, brush at the end of it. And you could just white out that mistake. It was wonderful. It was great. I tried to do that on my iPhone screen. Not so much. Uh, that stuff was your friend, man. And that's the idea here. The idea, David is picturing his sins as a list of offenses that he can be accused of as a portfolio of debts, as it were, that he can't repay. And so he's asking, he's pleading with God to just erase that entry. Just blot it out. And then he says, wash away. And this isn't a bookkeeping term. This is more of a laundry term. Uh, Just think tied with bleach, only much stronger. The idea is to take soiled clothing and wash it until the stains are removed. Many of us have had that op that option where we've gotten the stain on the shirt and we put it in and we add something to the wash and it's removed. And that's the idea. David's saying, my my sin has has dirtied me, it's soiled me. Lord, wash it away. And then he says, cleanse, cleanse me. And this is a different idea. This idea is drawn from uh, being ceremonially unclean, where you were forbidden, you were not permitted to enter the temple to worship. Uh, Many lepers were uh, those who would experience this desire to be washed of or purified from sin. The idea of hyssop and blood and water being sprinkled to absolve you of your sin, allow you to then have fellowship with the Lord. That's kind of the idea here. But then he says in verse 3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. One of the issues of not confessing is you know what you've done wrong, but you haven't let anyone else know. And so he says, I know my transgressions. My sin is before me. But then he says something really curious in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you guys catch that? Against you only have I sinned. Well, wait a minute. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? 
What about the child who died as a result of their sin? What about David's troops? What about the entire house of Israel who was deceived by their king who had been anointed by God? How can David say his sin was against God only when he had sinned against so many people? I think we have to understand the deeper nature of sin. And so I want to just jot down three points today. If you're taking note, I want you to write these down or you can take a picture of the screen. This is important to note here when we think about when we've been sinned against or when we sin against others. Okay, so jot these down. The first idea is that sin is cosmic treason against God. Have others been affected by your sin? Absolutely. But we need to start with the ultimate definition of sin itself. Timothy Keller says this. He says, sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you'll be tried for treason because you've betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It's overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. Okay, some of us misunderstand sin and we go, I'm going to go to hell for telling a little white lie? That's not fair. That's, I mean, I'm going to go to hell like someone who's done some horrible things. All I did was tell a white lie. That's not fair. Do you, are you saying I would? Yes, I, yes, you would. Because you and I would admit the consequences are different when you lie to someone who means nothing. So let's say your Uber driver picks you up and says, so what do you do for work? And you don't really want to tell him. So you kind of, you know, you just lie. Ah, oh, this is what I do for work. You're kind of general. That's very different than when you lie to your wife. And that's very different than when you lie to the IRS. Why? Well, because those different authorities, uh, the greater the authority, the greater the offense. You still lied in all three cases. But what you consider to be just a little harmless lie is actually a great affront against a holy God. God doesn't say, oh, that's just kind of a little misunderstanding. No, it's a treasonous rebellion as you've transgressed against a holy mighty, set-apart God. And so David gets that. He may have sinned against a large group of people, but David says, ultimately, it was against God first and foremost. So sin is cosmic treason. Secondly, jot this down, everyone born of Adam is infected with sin. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, this does not mean, as some have erroneously taught to their shame, that David's mom was a sinner and that she had some inappropriate relationship, and that's how David was born. And so that's why David wasn't included with all the other brothers. That's ridiculous. That's not the idea that David's mom had a sinful relationship, and that's why he says this. No. Uh, what he's saying is that our human nature from the very beginning has become corrupted. Theologically, we call this the doctrine of original sin. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1-3, Paul mentions this on the screen. Paul said, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and... We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The idea there is that we were born into sin. Uh, and so David acknowledges that even from the womb, he was a child of wrath. He didn't become a sinner the first time he sinned, right? Someone told me the other day, everyone's born left-handed. You turn right-handed when you commit your first sin. <laughs> Obviously, I love that as a left-handed person. Any other lefties here? Yeah, I've offended everyone else. And so I didn't say it. I don't agree with it. Uh, but that's not the idea. You don't sin and now you're a sinner. The idea is you were born into sin. And, and so he acknowledges, man, I'm a child of wrath. I'm worthy of condemnation because of the inherent sin in my life. But thirdly, jot this down. God's wrath is fully just and deserved by all who sin against him. Your sin is enough to set off alarms today. <laughs> David says in verse 4, look at it with me again, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, Paul quotes these words in Romans chapter 3. And he's quoting that in Romans 3 to prove that our unrighteousness shows that the righteousness of God 
uh, is right and just in his wrath against sin. Justice is getting what we do deserve, which is the wrath of God, and David knows he deserves it. So he cries out for mercy instead. And so he pleads to God this confession. Now, let's look at the second section, which is a prayer for cleansing. If verses 1 through 6 are a prayer for external pardon, then with this up, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David is saying, I'm like a leper. I'm unclean. Uh, This disease is eating me away, and I need an outside source to make me whole again, to take what is dirty and to wash it and make it white. Then he says in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Very enlightening here. Uh, One of the deceptive lies of sin is that when you sin, it will bring you pleasure. Uh, But it actually enslaves you to misery. And so David is saying, I'm miserable. And so let me hear joy and gladness again. Any of us who live with unrepentant, unconfessed sin become perpetually trapped in a state of bondage, and it's miserable bondage. But happy is the one who confesses their sin. In Acts 3.19, Peter actually says this to uh, the people of Israel gathered there, uh, at least a crowd of 3,000 or more. Uh, He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We think by sinning, that will be refreshing. But David says, no, I want to hear joy and gladness again. I want to let these bones that have been broken by sin rejoice once again. Well, then he says in verse 9, look at it with me. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. In other words, David is saying, I'm not going to hide my sin from you, God. I'm bringing it out in the open. But as I do that, Lord, I'm asking for you to hide your face. Don't look. Lord, it's so embarrassing what I've done. Cover your eyes. I'm not going to hide anymore, but this exposure is so embarrassing. Can you just strike it from the record? Can you just blot it out? And then verses 10 through 12 are one of the best prayers, I believe, in the Old Testament. And they're probably familiar to you because they comprise many worship songs. Listen to verses 10 through 12. David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David certainly had seen the fall of the former king, King Saul, and how God had removed the presence of the Holy Spirit from Saul because of his disobedience. But see, David is writing this from the perspective of the Old Covenant, and the Holy Spirit was at work in a very different way in the Old Covenant. But we know in the New Covenant, the Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, seals us until the day of redemption. So listen, believer, you don't need to worry about being unsealed, that the Holy Spirit's going to depart from you. You won't be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, Don't fear being cast away from the presence of God or to lose your salvation. But see, in that same passage in Ephesians 4, we're told don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, you and I can bring grief. uh, We can cause sorrow or mourning to the third person of the Trinity. So though believers shouldn't fear the Holy Spirit being removed from us, from being indwelled, we can certainly defile the temple of the Holy Spirit and the impact of being empowered by the Holy Spirit can be greatly limited. David is asking for God, the creator God, to create within him a heart that is clean. He's also asking for God to renew him and to restore him. Now, I like that word renewal. I've been using that word a lot lately. Uh, The word revival causes some people to cringe because it has some weird connotations with the word revival. But a lot of guys that I'm contemporary friends with are using the word renewal. Lord, bring renewal in our day. And I like that. And I've been praying for that. God, bring renewal and let it start here. Lord, let it start in my life. If I want to see Shoreline Church impacted, Lord, renew my heart. Renew our elders' hearts. Help us to be restored and desiring the joy of your salvation. Help us, Lord, to be upheld with a willing spirit to serve your people. Lord, do that in our church. Do that in Bradenton, Lakewood Ranch, Sarasota. Do that to the ends of the earth. But it starts here. It starts in me. It starts in us. And so David asked God uh, to renew him, to create something fresh, to restore him new. I like that idea of restoration. 
uh, Jen and I have been kind of doing some updates on our house, and uh, we found this old, on Craigslist, I found this old hideous brass headboard. I mean, it was 70s fabulous. It was great. Found this thing, and it was really bad. Like, it, it would have made shows where you kind of throw back. So I get this. Um, we, we restored it. We, we kind of sanded it down. We spray painted this awesome color. And now it looks amazing. But we took something that was kind of worthless and we restored it. And that's kind of a picture. David saying, man, I have blown it. I have sinned. Lord, thank you that there's an opportunity to come to you to be renewed, to be made new, to be restored, to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. And all of that, verses 10 through 12, is the work of and the initiation of God. But there's also, in our sanctification, a participation. So that brings us to our third section, a promise of commitment. Notice verses 13 through 17. David now says, you're going to do this work, Lord, but I want to join you and participate with you in this. So he says in verse 13, look at it with me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And then he goes back to it, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And if you'll do that, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David says, Lord, if you'll deliver me from the blood guiltiness, then I will teach and I will sing and everyone will hear it. I don't know about you, but when we've experienced the great mercies of God, it should cause us to want to tell someone. It should cause us to want to sing. When I sing words like the song, It Is Well, you guys know that hymn, It Is Well? When I get to the part of that song where it has these lyrics, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Man, I don't know about you. I'm probably the only one, but man, that takes me from zero to teenage girl. That gets me so amped up and excited. Someone's like, well, that's not appropriate. Oh, I'm sorry about that, but you don't have teenage girls. I mean, it gets me pumped. It gets me excited. It gets me loud. I'm not going to say it gets me emotional, but man, the spiritual volume in my lungs goes up. I'm just overcome my tongue, like David, just wants to sing aloud. Lord, you've done this in me. Open my mouth and I'll just declare it. And what will come out of it will be praise. I love that. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice. If you did, I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Can you imagine if God's like, okay, David, offer six bulls and we're good to go. We'll cover this. No, he says, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, Lord, if I knew you just wanted an animal, I'd bring one. But that's not what's pleasing to you. What you're looking, instead of a burnt offering, what you're looking for, instead of a slain animal, is a burned, broken, and slain heart. You see, church, lust was not the problem for David. His heart was the problem. Murder for David wasn't a people issue or an anger issue. It was a worship issue. David committed these great sins ultimately because he had failed to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and to serve him only. Yes, he broke four of the last five of the commandments, but the real issue was that he had first violated that very first commandment. He had allowed other gods before the one true God. So listen, to be a man after God's own heart does not mean that you're sinless. It means when you do sin, you immediately confess your sin and you bring a broken and contrite heart before God when you sin. David makes a commitment here to teach and to sing and to tell and to keep bringing his broken, sinful heart to constantly appeal to the mercies of God. Listen, to be a man after God's own heart doesn't mean you never sin. It means when you do sin, you're quick to confess and to trust God. And so that brings us to the last two verses, which is a petition for compassion. Look at verses 18 and 19. David zooms out from his own experience to all of Israel, and he says, Do good to Zion, the dwelling place of God, to the people of God, to Jerusalem. Do good in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
Now, some scholars think that someone went later and added these two verses because they're different. But I don't agree. I think David, as the king, is realizing what his sin has done to the people of God. And so he's looking now away from himself and to all of the children of Israel and saying, Lord, please just do good. Do good to the people uh, corporately. Certainly as the political leader of the nation, David would have been concerned that his personal sin would bear national consequences. And so he says, God, do good to Zion. Build up the walls of the city. Maybe he meant that literally because God said, sword's going to come against your house. He's like, okay, build the walls. That's our defense. Maybe he meant it spiritually. God, build up the walls of this city and the men so that they don't wander on the roof of their homes and lust after other men's wives. But notice that he's concerned that God would once again delight in right worship. I pray, God, you would delight once again in right worship. Tying this idea into our series, Doxology and Worship, I think it's quite impossible to cherish unrepentant, unconfessed sin, and yet simultaneously be bringing right and pleasing worship to the Father. David said it this way in Psalm 66. He said, if I cried out to him for help, Uh, praising him as I spoke. And if I, verse 18, had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In other words, if, if I'm bringing prayers and praise and petitions, yet I'm cherishing unconfessed sin, they hit the ceiling if I refuse to acknowledge and abhor that sin in my heart. And so, man, we should have that desire to give right sacrifices and to keep short accounts with the Lord. Now, I think the application for this psalm is pretty obvious, and that is that compassion and cleansing and commission are found in confession. Or to put it another way, if you want to be forgiven and you want to be restored and you want to be used by the Lord, then you must not conceal your sin, but confess it. Proverbs 28, 13, uh, this is the son of David who saw his father's folly and committed some of the similar issues with his lust. Uh, Solomon said, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I want to give us some application uh, to this text in five ways. I want us to uh, really learn how to confess in five steps. So jot these down. I think these are very beneficial, very helpful uh, for us. By the way, this is helpful in relationships. It's helpful in marriage. Hint, hint, husband, wife, this is great stuff for marriage. Uh, This is great stuff for every believer. How to confess in five steps. Number one, admit specifically what you did wrong. David here names his sin. Nathan named it, and he said, yep, that was me. Now, today we don't like the word sin. We'll use anything but sin. We'll use disease. We'll use disorder. We'll use a fashionable phrase that takes the sting out and the blame out. Well, that's just, you know, that I'm a type two, okay? I'm an Enneagram type two, and that's just how we are. That's how we roll. Mm, no, that's called sin. Let's just call it what it is, okay? There's a visitor uh, who came to a church one Sunday, and the pastor was preaching against sin. And it was a very powerful message. Well, this visitor didn't like it. And they came up to him after the service, really annoyed. And they said, Pastor, you can't talk about sin so plainly and so strongly. And the pastor said, look, I understand what you're saying, but um, I want you to look at this. And he pulls out a bottle, and he said, look at the label. And the the bottle, the label said strychnine, and underneath it in bold red letters, it had the word poison. And he said to this guy, he said, do you know, man, what you're asking me to do? You're asking me to change the label. And so suppose I do it. Pretend I take the word poison out, and instead I write essence of peppermint. He said, do you know what would happen? someone would use it and not know the danger involved and they would die. And he said, the pastor said, so it is with sin. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. I like that story. I don't know why the pastor had a bottle of strychnine in his pocket. We'll never know the answer to that. But let's not make the label mild, church. If you've fallen into pornography, men, you haven't slipped. You've transgressed against your wife, against the Lord, and even against your own body. If you're living together today and you're not married, that's not convenience or cohabitation. That's called sexual immorality. We need to stop calling it substance abuse. Scripturally, it's on par with witchcraft. 
You may call your behavior an innocent curiosity in other people's life. God calls it a jealous spirit. Oh, I'm sure the neighbor's boat is epic. But there's a word for the thoughts you've been having about his boat. It's called covetousness, right? We need to name the sin when we're confessing it. So admit what you've done wrong. Now, a lot of us just now thought of people. We're like, yeah, that guy needs to hear this message. No, we need to hear this message. We need to admit it. Okay, secondly, so admit what you've done wrong specifically. Secondly, address whom you've affected. Ultimately, all sin, David says, is an affront against God. But listen, if you've openly sinned against others, you need to confess and address uh, them. Often in my personal times of confessing sin, the Lord will put someone on my mind, and I'll just go, man, I haven't talked to them. I sinned against them. I haven't made it right. And so it's not a text, right? It's not a, it's going to be a, a face-to-face, and it's going to happen. And listen, this does not mean you go to someone and say, hey, so it's been 20 years since our high school reunion. I've been jealous of you for 20 years. It's just I want to let you know. <laughs> That's not going to go well, okay? It's got to be where, you know, they know about it. And chances are, if you've openly sinned against them, they already have been waiting for you to come. Now, what would that look like if we cleared the debts here at Shoreline? What would that look like? Some of us have offenses we've caused others, big or small. And we just go to them today and we humbly confess, man, I've sinned against you and you know it and I know it. I am sorry for that. I'm wrong for that. Will you forgive me? I know I'm forgiven in Christ, but will you forgive me? Can you take time to forgive me and just pray together? Can you imagine if we did that instead of tiptoeing around each other? What would that look like if we took the etch-a-sketch that we have against one another and we just shook it clear today? You know what would happen? We'd change the city. What would happen today if we address the person we've affected? Well, thirdly, we need to acknowledge the hurt that we've caused. A lot of times we don't go there. We just say, I'm sorry about that. But we need to acknowledge the hurt that we've caused. Listen, what you've dabbled in is what nailed God's son to the cross. Okay? So rather than blaming others, we need to acknowledge to others how we've sinned against them. Maybe you've sinned against your parents. Parents, we know we've sinned against our kids often. And we think the stoic parent doesn't ask forgiveness. No, the contrite and broken godly parent will go to his, his son or daughter and say, I sinned against you by yelling, by breaking down in my anger. Will you forgive me? And that is a greater example, I think, than being stoic. A little acknowledgement goes a long way. So we acknowledge the hurt. Fourthly, we accept the consequences if we've sinned, but we also accept the forgiveness of God. We tell God, I'm willing to bear the awful consequences of my sin. David was. He was willing, and it resulted in that eventual death of that boy. Sometimes we will face the tragic result of our poor choices, but sometimes God in his mercy uh, and in his kindness doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But that's up to him, not us. Uh, We accept the consequences, but we also accept the forgiveness that is given to us, afforded to us at Calvary. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're completely forgiven, so receive it. If you're not in Christ today, as the service concludes, we'll have people in the back to pray for you. We want your sins to be forgiven, but you stand at enmity with God today. And it's not about religion. It's not about trying to be right and whiten your teeth. It's about the work of God in Christ, covering your sin, cleansing you from sin. Today, you need to receive that forgiveness that's available to you. So we accept the consequences, we accept the forgiveness of God. And finally, number five, we alter our behavior. Proverbs 28, 13 says, if you confess and forsake your sin, you'll find uh, compassion. So what that doesn't mean is, I'm going to 1 John 1, 9 it. I'm just going to ask for forgiveness. He's faithful and just, he'll forgive me. And I'm going to go back to that sin, and I'll 1 John 1, 9 it. And no, confess, sin, confess, no. The idea is that we'll... Uh, take steps to forsake our sin and mortify it. Uh, That means if you're struggling with a specific sin, you need to take steps. If you're struggling with lust today, male or female, you should have on your devices some type of protective software. Uh, In our family, we use something called Accountable to You, the number two. Fantastic. It has a VPN, so you can't sneak around it. Everything you look at on all of your devices, it's great. And it all but removes or eliminates the temptation. If you're not struggling with that, but you're struggling with covetousness, dude, why are you still, like, getting the magazines and the email lists? Why are you still getting that stuff? Why are you shopping at certain places? If you're struggling with drunkenness or gluttony, why do you keep shopping at the same place on the same aisles, going to the same establishments? 
If you're tempted with certain friendships or relationships, why do you keep yoking yourself together with people uh, who are unequal? And, like, we need to make specific changes to show, you know, I'm not just upset that I'm caught. I'm serious. I really want to repent. I want to turn from my sin and turn to the Lord. And so those are practical ways for us to uh, truly confess and truly repent. Now, we're going to close. I'm going to invite the worship uh, team forward. We're going to close in song. And uh, Mike and I were talking this week. There was a, an idea that jumped out at me from this text that just hit me between the eyes. And there's a song that goes along with this concept. And so we're going to sing this song together. But here's the, there's, here's the sentence I want us to leave with today on the screen. Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Amen? Man, there's not a single one of us today that can't relate to Psalm 51. Say, Lord, I need your mercy because I'm a sinner. But listen, though our sin is great, his mercies are more. Charles Spurgeon said this about verse 1, the abundant mercies of God. He said, men are greatly terrified at the, at the multitude of their sins, but here's a comfort. Our God hath multitude of mercies. If our sins be in number as the hairs of our head, God's mercies are as the stars of heaven. So listen, church, rest today in the wonderful truth that though your sin is great, his mercy is greater. Now, we're going to close in this song that sings those lyrics. And as we close today, uh, we're going to have folks available. We have uh, one of our elders, uh, Marcos and his wife, available to pray with you and for you. And perhaps today is the day you need to confess something. Maybe it's to the Lord. Maybe it's to another brother or sister. And as your pastor, I want to invite you to acknowledge your sin, to name it, to mortify it, to bring it to the Lord today, and to receive his abundant mercy. God's not going to be surprised. He's not shocked. There's mercy for you at the cross. Though your sins are many, his mercies are more. Today, though, you need to confess your sin. And maybe that needs to happen to someone else. Maybe husbands need to confess to their wives, wives to their husbands, brother in Christ to another brother. But wherever you're at, don't stay silent. Learn from David's penitent prayer. And this morning, cry out with the assembly of the broken saints to ask God for mercy. Amen? Father, we thank you that in Christ, we have available for us your great grace and mercy. And we acknowledge today our sin that we are, because of our sins, separated from a holy God. And we stand with the precipice before us of eternity and an eternity apart from you in hell and the agony and torment of being separated from you. And our sin has caused that, Lord, but we thank you that you bridged the gap by sending your son, born of a virgin, born of woman, who came in the line of Adam, yet was sinless and bore our sins in his body on the tree. We thank you that Jesus was crushed so that we might live. And Lord, we pray that we wouldn't hold back this morning, but we would lay down our sin and receive forgiveness in our time of need. We approach your throne of grace today with confidence. And as we sing these lyrics, Lord, remind us of your mercies that are multitudinous and amazing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.